Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started studying God's word, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the word ready to uh, concentrate this evening and dust out our minds from all the cobwebs of today's activities and tomorrow's worries and everything else, and we can focus on the Word and the Holy Spirit can uh, teach us and we can uh, be encouraged by the Word and uh, grow spiritually. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful that God, the Holy Spirit, uses the the word to uh, pierce our thinking, to challenge us, to correct us, to uh, cause us to rethink perhaps cherished ideas because they don't hold up against the word of God and that the ultimate authority is your word. It's not our experience. It's not for us to sit and think, oh, well, I wonder if God could do that or God can do this other thing and somehow impose our limited, finite understanding upon you, recognizing that you are omniscient and omnipotent and that even though we may not understand why you let things happen the way they do or why you allow certain things to transpire or what just what you're doing in our life, we can trust you because we know, as Abraham said, that uh, the God of all the earth will do right. And so, Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, that we'll come to a greater appreciation, understanding of your work in history, your work in uh, our lives, and how you have given us such a remarkable uh, blessing as the Holy Spirit to empower us in our day-to-day spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I got to looking at my calendar this afternoon, I realized that it's been at least three weeks since we last met and talked about Acts. And I know that there's a few people here tonight that weren't here even then, so we'll get a little review because uh, for one reason, is it just good to review to go through these things uh, and hear them again? We learn by repetition, and some of us need more repetition than others. Secondly, when I covered this material the last time, there were at least two or three people who had questions that needed some clarification. That's probably because I was getting rushed at the end and didn't say it as clearly as I should have said it. And so we'll go back over some things and make sure we get some of those uh, things clarified, and then we'll uh, move a little bit further into this event. This is really a tremendous chapter as we get into the second chapter of Acts, because this is the this is the birthday chapter. This is the birth of the church, 
And this shows the real distinction that happens in history. There is something that is revolutionary that's never happened before. You know, we're 2,000 years down the road. Many of you have been in church many, many years. You've heard many doctrines about uh, from the New Testament. You've heard all about the day of Pentecost and all the things that happened and the unique privileges that Christians have in God's plan during this age and what God is doing in the future. But so we familiarity does indeed breed something like, it's not contempt, at least apathy. And we forget how significant this was. This is, this is revolutionary. This is mind-boggling. Now, we, we talk so much Easter or Resurrection Day comes in a few weeks, and we're so used to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead that we forget what a fantastic thing that must have been at that time for someone to come walk out of the tomb, for Lazarus to walk out of the tomb, and then just a short time later for Jesus to walk out of the tomb. This was just mind-blowing at the time, and we somehow forget uh, some of that. So we're in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, and all these events take place in Jerusalem. And I have some new maps. Logos uh, Bible Software has developed some of their, what they call, infographics, and they've just got some tremendous uh, graphics that uh, really help us to see and understand uh, a lot of different things. So much in the Bible is is visual that to be able to see it and to understand those visual connections really helps us get a better understanding of what's happening in in the Scriptures. And since we're going through this historical section here where everything for at least the next four chapters or five chapters takes place in Jerusalem, I thought it would be good just to put up this uh, map of the of the old city. This is more than what is called the old city today. The walls of of the first century Jerusalem were not identical to the walls today. The walls that are uh, that uh, are around the old city today were built by Suleiman in the uh, 15th century. So they're, they were built, though many of them were built on top of the remains of the old. Uh, Herodian walls. So as I'll show you in some pictures, half the walls made of Herodian stones, and then the from halfway up to the top, it's made from uh, the time of uh, Suleiman. So this was the old city, and as you can see, just this little finger that comes down to the south uh, is the old city of David. This was the city at the time that David took it from the Jebusites. Uh, during the latter part of the divided kingdom, they were expanding out across the uh, Tyropean Valley and up the hill to the upper city. And by the time that you get into the first century, uh, this was roughly the size of the city. The upper room where the disciples had had the Passover meal the night before Jesus went to the cross is thought by some to be up in this area. This would have been the uh, River Oaks of uh, Jerusalem at that time. This was where the uh, more affluent lived and the less affluent lived down the hill. And so it was thought that there was somewhere in this area where uh, the upper room was located. Others think it was down here. There's even one tradition that it's over in the old city somewhere uh, in this, right about in this area, uh, at St. Mark's, but we don't really know for sure where that house was located. It's just sort of a guess built on a uh, so, little bit of tradition, but not not a whole lot. 
On this slide, I'm just zooming in a little bit so we can see the temple uh, area here. Uh, the disciples move that morning on the day of Pentecost from the room where they had been staying at the upper room, somewhere either here or here or possibly uh, this area here, and they move to the uh, temple area. And so the, all of the events, they're at the house, the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes in verse 4, and then when... Um, then after that, between verse 4 and verse 5, some time elapses, and they move from there uh, to the uh, outer, probably the southern gates of the temple. So north-south axis on this picture runs diagonal, and then your west is this direction and east is this direction. And so that gives you just a little orientation. We're told that that morning that they were all filled with the uh, Holy Spirit. And that, as I pointed out last time, is not the same thing that we think of in terms of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit today in Ephesians 5.18. This is a different word that's used here than in Ephesians 5.18, where we're commanded to be uh, filled uh, by means of God the Holy Spirit. And uh, the New Testament, you find two different Greek words. The word used in Ephesians 5.18, which is the word that's in an imperative mood there or, or a command, is the word plerao. The only time that plerao is used as a command in relation to the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians 5.18. That's a one-of-a-kind spot. Now, there are other passages that um, use the word pimplami. And this word is, if you look at all the uses of this word, it describes a filling that is, first of all, a sovereign act of God. The people don't expect it at all. It's just all of a sudden they are surprised and they have uh, this ministry of the Holy Spirit upon them. It's more like the Old Testament ministry of endowment than the New Testament ministry of the filling by means of the Spirit, which is related to spiritual life or spiritual growth. The second thing that we see is that it always results in something that is spoken. Uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is filled by means of the Spirit, and then he speaks. Before him, Elizabeth and Mary were both filled by the Spirit in terms of with this word pimplami, and immediately after that, they speak. Later on in Acts 9, Paul is filled uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, filled of the Spirit. Literally in the Greek, it's a genitive, filled of the Spirit, and he speaks. So it's always followed by some kind of speech that is empowered or energized by the Holy Spirit. And so the, most of these occurrences outside of, of uh, Acts 2 and Acts 9, uh, this is the only time that we have have this word used in terms of the church age, only in this transition period covered by the book of Acts. You don't find it um, later on in in the epistles as uh, something describing uh, any kind of Christian experience, just in the early, early stages of the church. So it's a sovereign act of God, results in something spoken, and it first occurs in Luke 2, three times in Luke 2. And then it occurs a couple of times in the early part of Acts, and that's it. Now, in Luke, that's Old Testament. That's still the age of Israel. That's not in the church age. So this is not related to a church age ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we're told that the day of Pentecost had come. That's in the first verse. 
And as they prepare, the disciples prepare to go to the uh, temple in order to uh, worship for, for the day of Pentecost, this event occurs. And verse um, uh, 2 says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So they just hear it. There, there's no wind. It just sounds like wind. sounds like a tornado. sounds like a freight train coming through your living room. Uh, and then they see these individual flames upon, over each one, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, when we look at this in terms of the fulfillment, in terms of the day of, of Pentecost, the term Pentecost is a Latin-based word that is related to 50 days because the uh, the, the day came uh, seven weeks plus one day after the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So seven weeks is 49 days, seven times seven, plus one day is 50 days. So Pentecost relates to this 50-day period uh, after the day after Pentecost, I mean after Passover. And the observance of this is spelled out in Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 21. It is a second harvest uh, festival. The first harvest festival is, of course, the day of first fruits, which occurs three days after uh, Passover. And so that is was fulfilled, and the typology was fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruit. So that's the first fruits of the spring harvest. This is the first fruits of the summer harvest. And so it's expressing that God is doing something, uh, something new at this particular, uh, this particular event. And so, um, it's the names that refer to this Feast of Weeks. First of all, Feast of Weeks. We went over this the last time. Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest, uh, and also it's called the Day, the Day of First Fruits. And in this event, the biblical practice, as it's described in Leviticus, was to have two loaves of bread. These were the only loaves that were. Uh, allowed to be leavened. Everything else is unleavened. Whenever you look at bread and any of the other other rituals, it's unleavened because it usually has something to do with the person of Christ and it's speaking of sinlessness. But these two loaves of bread are still leavened. There is a presence of sin there. And so uh, they represent, they're presented on one sheet. So there's a unity there by the one sheet. And the two loaves of bread that are still leavened represent the two peoples of God, the two peoples that will come together in one body in the church age, and that is Jew and Gentile who become uh, one in Christ. Now, there are, uh, I mentioned two messianic implications the last time, and I'm going to add two to it tonight. First of all, this is the birth of the church. That's what the it's, is uh, indicated in the fulfillment. Its fulfillment actually has to do with Israel. All these holidays, all the feast days, looked forward to something that God was going to do in Israel. So you can't say that the day of Pentecost is focusing on the birth of the church. That's not because it doesn't have anything to do with the church. It has to do with something with Israel. You can't say that that the day of Pentecost uh, has anything to do, however you interpret it, and there's a different people will come up with some different ideas as to what the significance is. We have to restrict it to something related to Israel. And if we look at the progression of events in the spring calendar with the death of Christ on Passover, the resurrection on first fruits, and now what happens on the day of Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that was the fulfillment 
if Israel had accepted Jesus as Messiah, then this would have been the coming of the Holy Spirit that would have been the fulfillment of the uh, predictions related to the new covenant and the coming of the Spirit and the establishment of the kingdom. Because they did not accept him, and here's we get we get into that uh, difficult transitional kind of, of stuff where there's still an offer of the kingdom on the table for Israel, but God started something new, and so you have uh, two things overlapping here in this transition zone. And so the day of Pentecost foreshadowed the coming of the Holy Spirit, and what happens is instead of something happening to Israel, it's the birth of the church. But everyone to whom something happens is a Jew. It all comes to Jews, it's happening to Jews, and you have nothing but Jewish Christians for the first four or five chapters uh, in Acts before it begins to spread out uh, to the Gentiles. second messianic implication, as I pointed out, is that the two loaves of bread represents the two peoples that are part of the church, Jew and Gentile. The third is that the first fruits represent the birth of something new, This is the beginning of something new, a new organism, which is the church. And the church at this point is just comprised of Jewish believers. God's just focusing on Israel in fulfillment of that Old Testament typology. And then the fourth implication is that we see a transition from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. Somewhere in this time period between... um, the 2nd century B.C. and the 2nd century A.D., we see a um, the beginning of an emphasis in Judaism on the uh, on the Mosaic Law. That at the um, um, when the Day of Pentecost is observed, there's this emphasis on the law, and people sit up all night to read the uh, Torah and what we see is that this, if, if that was in practice at this time, another thing that we see is that there's a transition going on here between this emphasis on the law of Moses to transitioning to the law of Christ. So there's this whole transition thing that goes on as this new stage in history occurs. Now, in terms of the new stage in history, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is a fulfillment of two things that have been going on. This promise that started with John the Baptist, that one would come after him who would baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. The baptism by means of the fire thus is, I mean, by means of the Spirit is thus first prophesied by John. John prophesies someone's coming after him, and he's referring to Jesus, who's going to baptize by the Spirit. And then Jesus, just before he ascended to heaven, told the disciples to wait here because uh, to receive the promise from the Father and not many days from now and that you would that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. In John 16, uh, in the upper room discourse, Jesus had predicted that he would leave, but he would be replaced by uh, another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so this event in Acts 2 is the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised in John 16 and uh, as well as in Acts 1, 4 through 5. Second observation we need to make is that this coming of the Holy Spirit 
is not just some sort of internal subjective event. They're not having a religious experience. They're not having a group hallucination. They're not all just sitting there having this uh, uh, group intense type of religious experience that's just an inner private thing. We live in a world today where religion, ever since the 19th century and the beginnings of and the introduction of Kantian philosophy, where you move from objective reality to subjective reality, where we don't know things as they are, we only know things as we perceive them. Uh, as a result of that, now religion is perceived as something that is not objectively real, but it's just an important, private, subjective thing that is uh, uh, important to each individual person, but it has no objective reality. Uh, what we see in the scripture is that, that God never operates like that. There, you never have this kind of subjectivity. At the conference, if you uh, heard um, uh, Pastor Mark Perkins on, give his uh, talk about mysticism, this is a problem that we have today with mysticism. People want to identify internal impressions or emotions as somehow the acts of God or the move of the Holy Spirit. And that's not what, what, uh, how God works at all. He's never worked in history in that kind of private way. And, and I, I want to qualify that by saying not in that kind of private way alone. When God did communicate something to someone in private, it was always validated by something in public. So when God, uh, through Samuel, for example, uh, anoints Saul to be the king of Israel, there were subsequent events that confirmed that in Saul's life that would give evidence to the nation that God had called him to be the king uh, of Israel. The same thing happens here. Even though there is a subjective reality to the coming of the Holy Spirit on each one of these, these uh, apostles, it's evidenced by three things. They, there is an external sound of uh, like like a great wind, there is the visual appearance of fire, and then there is this miraculous speaking in a language that they had neither learned nor acquired. And so that validated the subjective. So God doesn't just do things in private, just hit people with these uh, inner impressions. Uh, that's mysticism, and that has nothing to do with biblical uh, Christianity. The third thing we need to observe as we go through this is that the language that's used in uh, several verses is the term outpouring, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people. Now, this term isn't a technical term. It doesn't mean indwelling. It doesn't mean filling. It doesn't mean any of these things. It's a general term that deals with all of them. We have the term outpouring in Acts 2, 17 to 18. Again, in verse 33, these are the only references to the pouring out or outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And again, in Acts 10.45, when the Spirit came upon the uh, Gentiles with Cornelius. And so it's a general broad term for all of these ministries of the Holy Spirit in, that would include uh, his, um, all, the, all the new ministries that would come to the church-age believer. The only other clear reference of this that has anything to do with the Holy Spirit in Romans 5.5, 5, which says the Holy Spirit pours out God's love on our heart. It's not the Holy Spirit that's poured out. It's that he pours out the love of God. So that really doesn't apply uh, to this either. 
So this is just a non-technical word to summarize these ministries. And these ministries are the baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism by means of the Spirit, to be technically correct, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer, the giving of spiritual gifts to every believer, the sealing of the Holy Spirit of every believer at the instant of salvation, which secures them in their salvation, and then the filling by means of the Holy Spirit. Of those, none can be lost. None are repeatable except for the filling ministry by means of the Holy Spirit. The other ministries all take place instantly at salvation. They're non-experiential, and they're non-repeatable. But the filling ministry by the Holy Spirit is repeatable, and it can be lost whenever we sin or we're out of fellowship. Now, the next thing that happens... The next thing that happens in verse 4 is that they were all filled uh, by the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And I got into this last time, and this is where I had some questions, so I want to hit it again from a different direction. Why did God give the gift of tongues? There are a lot of reasons that people think that he gave the gift of tongues, but there's only one passage in Scripture where the purpose for the gift of tongues is given, and that's in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, where Paul says, in the law it is written, and when he uses the word law here, it's interesting because he's going to quote from Isaiah 28, so he's using the word law or Torah not just to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, but to refer to the entire Old Testament. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Now, let's just look at this, because this is a paraphrase. This is, an, is not an exact word-for-word uh, word quote from the Isaiah 28, uh, 10 and following passage. And as Paul quotes it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is allowed to paraphrase and to reshape text, as we've seen, uh, because he's applying it, pointing out how it relates to a particular situation. Now, this he's, he's talking about fulfillment. If we go back to the way I explained the four different uses of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, how uh, the New Testament writers quote from Old Testament passages and say this fulfilled that, this is the first category, like Micah 5.2 that says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then the Messiah is literally born in Bethlehem. Well, this is a literal prophecy in Isaiah, and it has a literal fulfillment. The literal prophecy talks about Gentile languages uh, being heard in Israel, in Jerusalem, as a sign of judgment upon the Jews that the fifth cycle of discipline was coming, that they would be defeated militarily and would be scattered among Gentile, the Gentile nations. And so the uh, confrontation is stated uh, by God that even though he would speak to the people, that's not necessarily saying that he's going to be speaking doctrine to the people, that he's going to be teaching them the word, but that could be there. It's not a word that is restricted to that, that he would speak to the people and yet they would not listen. So it's a confirmation of their negative volition. It is not something that is given because it will convince and draw the Jews to God. It says they're going to hear this, it's going to be a sign of judgment, and the sign of judgment is they're still not going to listen to me. 
And then in verse 22, Paul says, Therefore tongues are for a sign. That's a purpose clause. The purpose for the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, is for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So the purpose of the, the purpose of tongues wasn't oriented to believers, but was oriented to unbelievers. In the original context of Isaiah, it's related to unbelieving Jews. And this was actually fulfilled twice in history, or three times if you want to be technical about it. Three times in history. In Isaiah 28.10, uh, we have a little sarcasm going on in the text. And then the section that's, that's directly quoted is what shows up as, as blue on the screen. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. And then the second line that's quoted is, yet they would not hear. Now, the stammering lips in another tongue or another language is how a foreign language sounds to someone who doesn't know. It just sounds like gibberish, sounds like babbling, but it doesn't communicate anything. And what God is saying here is that the way Israel will know that I am bringing about this harsh stage, the final stage, the harshest of stages of divine discipline, is they will hear Gentile languages in the land I promised that would be theirs exclusively, uh, not in the land of, uh, not outside the land. So it, they're going to hear Gentile languages in the land. Now this goes back actually to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a parallel to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is the chapter that outlines the five different stages of divine discipline. Uh, the fifth of which is that God told Israel that if you continue to disobey me, even after these first uh, four stages that get uh, increasingly uh, harsher, if you, uh, if you continue to disobey me, then you will be defeated militarily and you're going to be removed from the land. Now, this is related to Israel. And as part of that, Deuteronomy 28 summarizes Leviticus 26 And there we're told, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. So let's let's track this from the beginning to the end. The initial prophecy says, well, the sign of judgment that that you're in the fifth cycle of discipline is you're going to hear... Uh, strange languages, a language you don't understand in the land that I gave you. Now, why is that important? Because when God called out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God said, in you all nations will be blessed. From Genesis 12 on, God's plan and purpose was to reveal himself only through the Jews, only through Israel. Divine revelation and the word of God and the promises of God, as Paul says in Romans 9, 3, and 4, still belong to Israel. God is going to bless the nations via the Jews. So through the prophets of the Old Testament, God spoke and gave his word and revealed himself uh, through the Jewish prophets and gave us the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Then what happens is in 722 B.C. in the north and 586 B.C. in the south, when God brought about the fifth cycle of discipline against the northern kingdom of uh, Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they heard Gentile languages in the land. That's the fulfillment, uh, the first fulfillments 
of Deuteronomy 28. They're hearing a language they don't understand. It's simply the hearing of Gentile languages in the land of Israel. Hebrew is the language of God. Not these Gentile languages, not Akkadian, not Babylonian, not Latin, not Greek. We're not going to hear the word in these Gentile languages. When we do, that's a sign of judgment. doesn't matter what they said. What's the issue is that they were hearing these Gentile languages on the uh, sacred soil of the land that God had given them. So when Isaiah comes along, and Isaiah is teaching at the time of the, just a uh, hundred years before the invasion of uh, the southern kingdom and the conquest by, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's warning of the same thing. He says, you're going to hear uh, a nation with, uh, of a foreign languages, and that's going to be a sign of judgment. It's the hearing of those languages where they should be hearing the language of God that's the sign of judgment, that God is, is disciplining them and going to take them out of the land. So... We get into some some various uh, misunderstandings about tongues, and we have people who think that they're given for various purposes, as we saw in Isaiah, I mean in First um, Corinthians uh, 14. It's only for the purpose of being a sign to unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Israel. So the purpose for the uh, spiritual gift of languages is not to evangelize. That's what the spiritual gift of evangelism is for. So tongues wasn't given to evangelize. Tongues wasn't given to give special revelation. A lot of people think that tongues was part of the revelatory gifts. But tongues wasn't given for revelation. That was the spiritual gift of prophecy, the spiritual gift of wisdom and knowledge, spiritual gift of apostles. They gave revelation, not, it didn't, not tongues. And it wasn't given to teach the word. That's why you had apostles, and that's why you had uh pastors, and teachers, is you don't need uh, someone with the gift of tongues. That wasn't the purpose. So in the when people were speaking in tongues, communicating in a language they had not normally or naturally acquired, they may have given the gospel, they may have taught some things, they may have done or said other things related to the word, but that's never the issue in Scripture. The Holy Spirit never tells us what they said when they spoke in languages because that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't what they said. The issue was that they, it was said in Gentile languages. So when we get into uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 and we have uh, this event takes place where uh, all of a sudden these apostles, and I believe it was only the uh, 12 apostles, they're identified as 11 plus Peter as being the ones who spoke in tongues, which at this point would have to include Matthias, that these are the only ones who spoke in these miraculous languages. It was not something that they had learned, not something they had acquired. I've often wondered how this worked. Did they think in Hebrew or Aramaic and talk in Egyptian or Coptic or Latin? And... Um, I don't know a lot about language acquisition. That's a specialty that uh, Pam has. And we had a long discussion about the last time, and she, she believes that because of the way the brain works, the Holy Spirit would have had to have given them the ability to think in that language as well. They're thinking and speaking in that language. 
and they haven't learned it. Learning a language is a technical term for something a child does. In a normal environment, he learns a language. But then if you're older, if you're past those initial years when your brain is really adept at, at, at learning those new languages and you're in seventh grade or uh, eighth grade and you're learning Spanish or German or French or something else, then you're acquiring a language. So there's a difference between learning a language and acquiring a language. And so uh, the apostles neither learned nor acquired this language. It was miraculously given to them. And you just think about what that has to do with the brain, because when you're speaking in English, you're using certain areas of your brain. And if you think about English, if you know, if you, any of you have ever become fluent in another language, you realize how much the culture of that of the people who speak that language are, are is part of that language. So that if you're thinking in Spanish and you're speaking in Spanish, your brain is oriented to the way uh, Mexicans or Colombians or Puerto Ricans or, or the Spanish uh, have the, the, the cultural impact, their, their beliefs, their values, all of that plays into that, that language. And language. The relation of language to your brain and to philosophy of culture is a fascinating thing to get into, but we don't, that's not the point this evening. But if you're learning, if you're speaking different languages, it operates on different parts of the brain. So this miracle is operating at a lot of different, different levels. There's, there's brain involvement. There's a change in how they think, what they think, and not just uh, something coming out of their mouth. It's not just a, a miracle of utterance. There is a, a profound uh, purpose to this. And so as we go further into the text, we get into this. Um, we read in verse 5 that there were dwelling in Jerusalem at this time Jews, devout men from every nation in heaven. Now these men who are dwelling there, the term for dwelling uh, isn't a term that relates to just... Um, a permanent habitation. They're there for a short time. They're there for the uh, feast day and the feast period. And so these are men, they're called devout men. And the question gets raised, well, were these men already Old Testament believers? That is implied by that. And I think we could say that because they're following the Mosaic Law and they've come from Rome, as we'll see, they've come from Rome and Libya. Libya's in the news uh, they've come from uh, uh, all over uh, the area now known as Turkey, uh, Asia, Pontus, uh, Pamphylia, Cappadocia. They've come from uh, the area that is now Iraq and Iran. All of, they've come from all these areas. To travel for just this one feast day shows their devotion to the law and their devotion and obedience to Moses. And so we can suspect that a large number of them are Old Testament believers already. Some of them uh, obviously were not because they become uh, saved at this time. And so there's a transition that occurs between those who are already Old Testament saints who make their transition into the church and others who are not saved yet and uh, just become saved. Well, as they are all gathered together and they're coming up, getting up in the morning, they're coming to uh, uh, the temple early in the morning to celebrate uh, the day of Pentecost or Shavuot, uh, all of a sudden 
uh, they see these men, and when they hear this, this, this sound that had occurred that, that brought the Holy Spirit upon them, uh, they come together, they're trying to figure out the source of that noise, and then they see these 12 men outside the temple and speaking to each of them in their native language. And they're amazed, marveled, verse 7 says, and uh, they look at each other and say, well, wait a minute, first of all, these are all Galileans. Galileans aren't bilingual or trilingual. They, they can barely speak Aramaic or Hebrew. They can barely speak. Sort of like the old joke about, you know, hear about the Aggie that got, got saved at a, at, a, at a revival, tent revival one day. He got the gift of speech. So they're saying, are not all these Galileans, no offense to you Aggies in the crowd, uh, are not all these Galileans? Because the Galileans are, you know, they're the country bumpkins. They're, they're not supposed to know uh, how to communicate in all of these other languages, so they, they can't believe it. And they ask them the question, how is it that we hear each in our own language? Now, the word that's used here for language is not the word glossa, which was used earlier, that's normally translated tongues, but it's the word dialectos, where we get our word dialect. And it's just a synonym of tongues. It's talking about their own language. So you see these synonyms operating here. They say, how do we hear each of us in our own language in which we were born? And then verse 9 through 11 lists these, and we're going to see 15 geographical areas listed. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Verse 11 mentions Cretans and Arabs as well, but let's just stop here and think about this Uh, geographically. You have Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia. That's all the eastern part. Then you have Judea, and then you move northwest to the area which is modern Turkey, uh, Judea, I mean Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Pamphylia, those are five, um, five provinces that make up what is now modern Turkey. Then you move south to North Africa, uh, to Egypt, and then the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Cyrene was a Roman colony. And then you have also have visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Now, the question is, both Jews and proselytes, does that refer to just those from Rome, or does that refer to the whole group? I think it refers to the whole group. Most of these are Jews. Some are Gentiles who have converted uh, to Judaism. And then you have the Cretans and Arabs mentioned, uh, and then they say, we hear them speaking in our own dialect again, our own tongues, the wonderful, and here the word in the Greek is mighty or could be translated mighty or great works of God. So there's 15 geographical areas and at least uh, uh, six languages, uh, perhaps more. Trying to, okay. Now, let's stop here and observe what's happened. First of all, we have the, the um, disciples are already, they are already saved. Now they become, at one time, they're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues all in one simultaneous event. Then we're going to compare that with the other three events where speaking in tongues occurs in the book of Acts. 
because this is going to give us a little bit of an understanding of what is going on. So turn over in Acts to Acts chapter 8. There are three other places where you have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One is in Acts 8, one is in Acts 10, and the third is in Acts chapter 19. Now, in Acts chapter 8, we have the circumstance where Philip, who we haven't met yet, but Philip and uh, Stephen are two of six men that are chosen in sort of a proto-deacon role to uh, for the purpose of helping distribute uh, money and food to the Hellenistic widows, the, the widows of the uh, diaspora Jews that are in Jerusalem at this time. And, um, and so Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. And we see that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in a separate act on the Samaritan believers. And so turn to Acts chapter 8, and we'll just start at verse... Um, verse 12. And he has been already uh, uh, preaching Christ to them. That's in verse 5. So first you have the preaching of the gospel in verse 5 and again in verse 12. We're told in verse 12 also that when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God... In the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. This is water baptism. So first of all, Philip preaches the kingdom of God, preaches the gospel. The next thing that happens is that people believed and were then baptized, uh, in, that is, water baptism. And then uh, such a great thing has been happening that they sent word to Peter and John uh, in Jerusalem. Verse 14 we read, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they came down, verse 15, and come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So when the Samaritan believers, when the Samaritan believers first believe the gospel, they're not baptized by the Holy Spirit. They're not placed in Christ. They don't receive the Holy Spirit. They just get Justified. So Peter and John then come down from Jerusalem, and under that apostolic authority, remember the same guys who are present in Acts 2 are the ones who are in charge now, showing the unity of the church, because the, Jew, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had extreme prejudice towards them. Uh, a Jew in the first century was more prejudiced against a Samaritan than any southern clansman was towards a black person. That's how extreme it was. They would walk out of their way to go from Judea to Galilee. They would cross the River Jordan to the east side and go up the east side and then cross back over when they got up to the Sea of Galilee. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria. So John and Peter go to the Samaritans, and when they pray for them, then the Holy Spirit comes on them, showing the unity of the church. And in verse 16, even though they've already been gone, they've believed, they've been water baptized, and now the Holy Spirit came upon them. But uh, then they received the Holy Spirit, but no tongues are mentioned. They don't speak in tongues. Why? Because it's not related to the purpose at this point. So there's no gift of tongues, there's no speaking of languages uh, at that event. 
Then let's turn over a couple of chapters to Acts 10. In Acts 10, we have the episode where um, God is working in the Gentiles, uh, Cornelius, who's a centurion, and he brings Peter to, eventually, through a series of events, uh, Peter goes to the household of Cornelius. And this is something that's never done. As Peter says, uh, a, a, a person, a Jewish person, did not go into the house of a Gentile. He is, um, uh, it, it was prohibited, it was completely forbidden. So Peter, though, because of the vision that God had given him in the first part of the chapter, goes into the house and explains the gospel and who Jesus is in uh, chapter 10, verses 34 uh, down to 44. Actually, he really starts about explaining himself um, when he arrives after he arrives in verse 24, and he and Cornelius have some dialogue down through um, uh, 33, and then in 34, Peter begins to uh, talk about uh, what God is doing. A couple of things I want you to note here in relation to witnessing. A lot of lessons we're going to see on witnessing. Just A lot of things in witnessing are just common sense. What we see here is in both cases, or in almost every case up to this point, Witnessing involves a dialogue. Even Peter's sermon, when he witnesses and he preaches that first sermon in Acts 2, it's in response to people saying, what's going on here? Same thing in Acts 3, same thing in Acts 4. There's a miracle. Somebody says, what's happening? And then they explain. So there's dialogue that's going on. They're not engaged in drive-by evangelism. Now, one thing that's interesting is that when you look at what Peter says in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4, he's talking to Jews who have an Old Testament frame of reference. And so he doesn't need to explain a lot about who God is, and he doesn't need to explain a lot about sin and a lot of things related to the law. He's just going to apply those passages, as we'll see, to Jesus. But now he's not dealing with Jews. He can't assume they have a knowledge of the Scripture he has to explain things a little more fully. So from verse 24 to 34, we have uh, Cornelius and Peter in a conversation. They're getting to know each other. This isn't drive-by evangelism. Some people think all you need to do to make sure you've given the gospel to somebody, just say Acts 16:31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and then the Holy Spirit will take over. And that is a very shallow, superficial approach. Uh, to witnessing, Unfortun- and it's an immature approach. And unfortunately, we've all go th- gone through those stages. I've gone through them. We've all go through them where we really, uh, we're not very good at talking to other people. We live in a culture where we're not good at talking to other people. Uh, if you are talking to your neighbor, and let's say you're of one political persuasion, they're of another political persuasion, most of you would probably be more comfortable just telling them what the right thing is rather than getting involved in a 16-hour conversation where you have to point by point convince them that you're right and they're not. That's not easy to do. We have to learn things. We have to master the topic in order to do that. But if you just think about your own life. If you're wrong about something, and you're convinced by somebody else that they're right, you didn't, it didn't happen because somebody just went by and said, hey, you need to quit believing that and start believing this. Well, wait a minute. Why? What are you talking about? We have to have questions answered. I remember a conversation took place some years ago between 
um, you know, some, some various men sitting around the table, all of whom, a couple of them were, one was a pastor, one was a seminary student, others were, uh, had been in the Word for a long time, and, uh, in fact, one of the people was Charlie Clough. And one of the men was trying to say, you don't need to have any understanding of apologetics and answer questions and talk about anything. All you need to do is give people the gospel and the Holy Spirit will do the rest of it. And, and Charlie would say, no, you, you have to have a conversation with people. You have to talk to people. You have to build a relationship, get to know people. God loves that lousy, rotten sinner. You should too. Just, you know, just because they're obnoxious to you, does, you got to get past that, have a little uh, unconditional love. God did. And, um, and he's put you there so that you will get to know the person to help them to understand the gospel. One of the worst things we can do is just have some sort of drive-by evangelism where we treat a person as if they're nothing more than an object uh, for us so that we can get another notch on our belt saying, oh, that's another person I witnessed to this week. Um, there was an incident that occurred here. Didn't involve anybody in this congregation. Y'all are, I hope, more well taught than this. That happened during the the conference. I'm just going to use it as a as an illustration. It happened uh, a couple of different people. I witnessed uh, uh, b- both event. Well, I only witnessed one of them. I didn't see the other one. But um, during the, um, I guess, the second day of the conference, I had a friend of mine, uh, Randy Barnes, who is a uh, Orthodox Jew. And he is the regional director for APAC, come over just to explain APAC, the American Israel Policy Advisory Committee, to explain that to the pastor so that they would be aware this is the largest pro-Israel uh, lobbying group in the, in the country. And just to explain that to people, well, he didn't get five feet in the door, and somebody who didn't have in the sense God gave a goose, I admire his enthusiasm, but babies who are over-enthusiastic can just create problems. We've all had to clean up dirty diapers. Somebody who didn't have a lot of sense, had more enthusiasm than sense, makes a beeline for him and, you know, starts trying to nail him with the gospel before he gets six feet in the door. And fortunately, there were a couple of ladies in the church who had a little sense and under, immediately saw what was happening and sort of headed him off like a couple of uh, halfbacks trying to uh, uh, keep a quarterback from getting tackled and uh, got in there and protected him. And afterwards, there was another person in the church who uh, followed him out the door. And if uh, and I watched it happen again. Same people got, got in the way and good blocking maneuver uh, so that he could he could get out the door. I mean, he was on a time schedule. Uh, I, you know, there, there's a there's a right time and a right place to witness to people, and to and there's a wrong time and a wrong way to go about doing it. You just have to have a little sense, and you have to think about the fact that people have to have time to be engaged in the conversation, and uh, and you know, Peter takes a lot of time when he goes to Cornelius, and notice this isn't somebody he didn't know anything about. This is somebody who's a, mentioned as a God fearer. God already spoke to him, said, "Go witness to him." And uh, and they're ready. But did Peter walk in and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be saved? No. He goes through and he explains to them who Jesus is, why Jesus came. Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins, and you need to believe on him. What's interesting in this event is when he explains the gospel and who Jesus is, 
while he is speaking and before he, you know, when he says you need to believe on Jesus, but before anybody says anything, they don't utter a prayer to accept Jesus. They don't walk an aisle, raise their hand, do anything else. The Holy Spirit falls on them because they believed in their soul, and God knew what they believed. God didn't have to wait for them to say, God, I believe. He already knew that. And so before they even said anything, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and uh, they receive the Holy Spirit. So there's the giving of the gospel. They believe. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then uh, they're baptized with water. And then after that, they spoke in languages. And what does it say? They exalted God. That's the same kind of, it's, it's language that is used for just praising God. It's like in Acts chapter 2. When they uh, spoke in tongues, they spoke of the mighty things of God. Does that mean they gave the gospel? If God the Holy Spirit wanted to say they gave the gospel, he would have told us they gave the gospel. The point wasn't that they gave what they said. It was that it was said on the Temple Mount steps in Gentile languages that makes it a sign of judgment. It's not that they gave them the gospel. It's not that they explained the word. It's not that they solved mighty theological problems. It is that whatever it was they said is secondary to the point. And the point is that it was said in Gentile languages in a place that sh- where it should have been said in Hebrew and where the, the work of God had been going on in Hebrew to the uh, Jewish people. But because this is a sign of impending judgment, it's given in Gentile languages. And so that's the point, is that and in each of these cases where you have the speaking of tongues in Acts chapter 10, you have uh, a group with, with Peter. He's got his little entourage with him. And they are astounded at what happens. And they hear these Gentiles now, and the Gentiles are speaking in unlearned, unacquired Gentile languages. And again, this is going to be talked about. The rumor of this and the story of this is going to get around, and that will become, again, evidence that God is doing something and judgment is coming. Now, here's a map that gives us a spread of all these different areas where uh, these people came from. You have the Medes, uh, the Parthians, uh, those who live in Mesopotamia uh, over in this area, which is now modern Persia, uh, modern Persia and Iraq. And this is one group that comes. This is a large Jewish community there from the days of the Babylonian uh, captivity. And so you have Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, in uh, all in this area here, then those who live in Mesopotamia. Then there's a shift to another geographical area, and you have the those from Pontus and Phrygia, Pamphylia, Asia, and Cappadocia, and that's this area of what is now modern Turkey. And then uh, in between you have the mention of Judea. Then it shifts to Egypt, and those who lived in uh the region of Cyrene, which was part of Libya. But this Cyrene is over here, and it's a Roman colony. And then you had those in Rome, as well as uh, the mention of Cretes. Here's Crete here, and the Arabs. Now, what all of these people up here, I've heard people say, I got this from um, uh, Norm Geisler 
and he heard it from uh, initially from Gleason Archer, who's a well-known Old Testament scholar up at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And Gleason Archer done a lot of research on this and said there's actually only thir- only 12 linguistic groups represented here. Even though they're from 15 geographical areas, there's only 12 linguistic groups. And I'm thinking that he's going back to whatever the ancient uh, language of the Cappadocians, the Phrygians, uh, whatever their original language was. Uh, as I look at it, though, this area was overrun by the Greeks in the in the fourth century, and ever since about 320, uh, they've been speaking speaking Greek. Over here, the Parthian Empire dominated this whole area, and the uh, language of the day was was Parthian. There were probably some who spoke Persian, but Parthian was the, the the language of the day. The language of commerce throughout this whole area was Aramaic. Almost everybody spoke Aramaic from uh, Judea eastward. Uh, the uh, those in Arabia would have spoken Aramaic as well. You had the Egyptians who uh, spoke some form of uh, uh, Coptic. The, those in Cyrene as a Roman colony would have spoken Latin as those from Rome uh, as well. So you have, a, in, a, as far as my study can go, I've, I've tried to document what, what uh, Gleason Archer said for about 20 years now, and the best I can see is you've got at least six languages, depending on how many of them are still speaking ancient languages. And you may have no more than 12, so somewhere between 6 and 12 language groups, and you've got 12 apostles. And so the God in his efficiency is giving a, a language to each of the 12 apostles to reach all of these people from these different areas so that they can all hear about the mighty works of God and then be attracted to this situation and saying, well, well what in the world is happening? And so they've all gathered here on the steps of the temple, and next time we'll come back and we'll look at the uh, message that uh, Peter gives and the question they raise is, well, are they all drunk? I just love this. They say, well, they must be drunk. And Peter has real sarcasm here. I've never seen anybody bring this out. But Sukkot is a festival. It's feast time. They're going to start drinking later. What he says is, wait a minute, it's only 9 o'clock. We don't start drinking until much later in the day. He's not denying the fact that they're going to start drinking. He's just saying, no, 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 we don't start drinking yet. We'll, get, we'll, we'll do that later. So this isn't alcohol at work. This is something else. And so we'll come back and look at his explanation, which is very important when we take, uh, look at his sermon starting verse uh, 14 next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to be reminded that that you do a powerful work in history and that you are in control of history and that you are in control of of the events of history and you have uh, worked out a mighty work that began the church and that um, you have not turned your back on Israel, you have not turned your back on the Jews, and that even today there is a church that is comprised of Jew and Gentile where ethnicity is not an issue, but there is a future plan for Israel. And all these things are part of what is going on And these chapters that we study as you emphasize your plan uh, through the Messiah, through Jesus, to bring redemption to all people, to bring forgiveness of sins uh, to all people, and to bring in his kingdom. So, Father, we pray that as we study these things, we'll just gain a fresh understanding and appreciation for all that you've done and for the remarkable events that did occur on that original day of Pentecost. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.